0: Welcome back to Crazy Faith Talk, I'm Sarah, I'm Erica,
1: and I'm Steve.
0: So friends, we've spent the last several weeks uh, talking about denominations, the, the good, the bad, the ugly, um, how they are helpful to us, how they cause us frustrations and <laughs> and just general angst at times. Um, and so today we're going to be wrapping up this series. So where exactly are we taking this final episode today?
1: Well, um, maybe uh, in the interest of not ending in a, the depression in place of we keep fighting and squabbling and splintering to say, OK, make the positive case for why do we stick with this? I I, I know it's an old joke and I used it earlier, but I, honestly, and a lot of my uh, ecclesiology comes from that that joke of Woody Allen's about the guy goes to the psychiatrist and says, my wife thinks she's a chicken. The psychiatrist says, have you thought about having her committed? And he goes, I would, but I need the eggs. Um, and that like we keep. Why do we keep staying in these structures called denominations when they can force us to do things we don't want, or they can leave us hanging when we want something, or we split over things? There's something that uh, we are hopeful about in, in staying in partnership with others, even if the letterhead changes over time. So for us to spend some time talking about, what is it that keeps each of us in Church bodies, whatever they are, and how they might change, but that as opposed to going off and being hermits in a cave somewhere or uh, starting your own independent chapels or something like that. Here we are, representatives of denominational ministry. What gives us hope? Why do we stay in it?
2: So, so for me, religion has to be a communal thing mm-hmm. that. It is only in community that I can worship God and also learn about God. Cause I feel like when I do that too much in the vacuum, too much by myself, I might get a notion in my head that is not from God. And I don't want to make that become Orthodox for me. Like um, my internship supervisor, told me that I always need to reference commentaries like in in part of my sermon preparation that I need to always look at commentaries and if the thing that I want to say in my sermon I can't find in a commentary um, even if that's just a commentary on the internet that another pastor wrote if I can't find anything else that aligns with what I want to say then that's probably not from God because God is working through lots of people and God isn't going to tell me to just say something that God is not also telling other people to say. So I've taken that teaching that even my own learning can't be in a vacuum by itself because that is, I think, when the adversary likes to come and try to trip us up. So, it is by being in community, by being in conversation, that I know that I am on the right path. And so, since that has to be done in community, no matter what community I join with that I am a part of, there's going to be a part of that identity that is broken, that is flawed, because the community is made up of people, and people are broken and flawed. And so, therefore, I should not keep trying to find the perfect community because Mm -hmm. that community doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Because all community is broken and flawed. And it's us trying to figure out together how we can be in relationship with one another and with God. How can we worship God? How can we learn about God in the best way that we can, even when we tend to be broken together?
0: That's such a good word about. There being no perfect community. So I think in a previous series, somewhere we talked about this idea like of church hopping and things, people will, like will leave churches over those little minuscule things. You know, I don't like what the pastor said, or I don't like something that happened. And they're they're looking for that community where they're gonna agree with everything. Um, and everybody's going to agree with them.
1: Mm-hmm. That
0: doesn't exist. Yeah. You know, that does not exist in the church. So You will never find a perfect community because, like you said, Sarah, we're people. The church is run by people. Yes, God is in charge, but (laughs) God has left us to run it. And we are sinful. We are broken. And so there's going to be no church that's going to be completely 100% correct all the time and be perfect every second of every day.
1: Can I toss out a a question? And I mean this as one of those half-formed thoughts that could be on track or could be heresy. So this will be one of those, uh, we'll we'll test this and see if either of your commentaries will align with this or if this is, nope, don't say this. Um, And and I I think it's, it's an important thing first, just as both of you have said, to say all human communities are broken to some degree because all humans are broken. And that's, that's part of the reality. That's just realism. But I also wonder if sometimes the, the rough edges or the broken places are not just unavoidable, but maybe actually God's clever ninja secret way of doing something good among us that are, that's necessary. That wouldn't be possible if you had a hypothetical community of nothing but perfect people. And, and I guess here's what I have in mind. Um, I, I, when you were talking about us being broken, it reminded me of that beautiful line of the Leonard Cohen song anthem. You probably know, um, ring the bells that still can ring, forget your perfect offering. There's a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. And that image of things being cracked aren't, isn't bad, but maybe the crack is how the light gets in. Um, or I think about the way sometimes our, our points of conflict feel like we are abrasive to one another. And I think about like when a carpenter's in a wood shop, like, there's a point when you need the abrasion because that's what makes something smooth and if all of us were you know perfectly smooth there'd be no ability for us to be sanded down where we have rough edges so there's some piece of me that wonders if like part of god that it's not like god had to settle for broken people and that god's like oh man i wish i could find perfect people but there aren't any so i guess i'll settle for using broken people uh but rather if part of God's intentional design is here are broken people. I will use them. They will shape one another in ways that eventually allow them to become more Christ-like because mm-hmm. it's their very rough edges that allow them to figure out how to love, how to love one another um, and how to deal with imperfection uh, and how to deal with people who rub you the wrong way, e- except you don't, you don't learn that you don't get the ability to do that unless you are forced to do that. And maybe mm-hmm. that if all we had was people who are constantly perfectly well behaved and moral or always had perfect orthodoxy and we never had to live with that tension, we would easily slide into thinking we belong because we are right or we belong because we are moral rather than we belong because of grace um, so I guess I wonder whether even whether this idea of church as broken isn't a flaw but a design feature and I, I this is where I this may be a heresy or this might be honest so I, I will toss this out for your thoughts or your rocks.
2: <laughs> I, I think that is very true, right? Because it's only in discomfort will we change and grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and I certainly think that God wants us to grow. So if you're in a community where you're too comfortable, where everybody's getting along, everybody's thinking the same, I don't think that there's going to be any change. There's not going to be any growth because you don't see a need for change. There is a quote that I really like that i wish a religious person said <laughs> <laughs> like a real religious person said, Please don't tell me it's uh, a
1: nickelback quote
2: <laughs> no it's a it's a um it's a legend of cora oh okay well fair enough from the nickelodeon show it's okay. not even from the last airbender uh <laughs> which i think was a better cartoon um but no, it's from the sequel, which was good, but just not as good. Um, and this quote comes from Avatar Eng, Um, And he says, when we hit our lowest point, we are open to the greatest change. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's so true. And, you know, I've certainly been part of communities where something just fundamental has, like, rocked the whole community. And it's often in those moments that there is the opportunity for the greatest amount of change. That doesn't mean that necessarily that the community is going to change, um, but they at least have now that opportunity. Mm -hmm. And I am seeing that um, as I do more transition work in my synod with helping congregations transition from one pastor to another, that is often the catalyst of a pastor leaving that that is the moment that that community is going to be open to the greatest amount of change Mm -hmm. because like this this big person in their life the big part of their community is now gone and now they have a lot of decisions to make about what direction do they want to go in what is the next pat what what kind of pastor do they want to call like what do they want their focus and their passion and their energy to be and they're only able to make those changes because they've hit this kind of low point they've become become uncomfortable because the rough edges of the community is now grading against each other and yeah i think that's certainly true Hmm.
0: And I I see those rough edges grating against each other and showing us two different things, teaching us about grace Mm -hmm. and having grace with one another and teaching us biblical love. Mm -hmm. And I say biblical love in a sense it's easy to love people that you agree with, Mm -hmm. Um, but biblical love calls us to love not only people that we disagree with, but even Jesus calls us to love our enemies. Mm -hmm. And so those rough edges help us to live out that call Mm-hmm. To love those people that we disagree with, and sometimes, in some cases, people we might consider to be our enemies. Yeah. So I, th- I think you're spot on, Steve.
1: I read uh, a couple of summers ago a book by uh, the Mennonite pastor and author uh, Melissa Flora Bixler. Her book was called "How to Have an Enemy," um, and it's interesting because she she writes out of the peace tradition of the Mennonites. You know, so you're like, oh, she should be all about peace, and th- here's this book that was about like naming sometimes in conflicts. The temptation to sort of smooth things over with both sides ism of, OK, well, we disagree, but let's just sort of patch things up and pretend like sometimes the most honest and loving thing is to say we disagree. We can't work in these ways, but I can treat you charitably or the way I respond to you. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's helpful. It's a reminder that that pretending that our our differences or disagreements aren't there isn't really that genuine love at the ability can i even when we acknowledge here's places that we are in disagreement but i can treat you well and i can i can work respectfully or i can care about you that kind of thing uh and i can i can i can act in such a way toward you that i can look you in the eye i mean th- that that important mm-hmm. that like th- i'm i'm not i'm not um in the name of uh winning at all costs willing to uh you know, say things that aren't true about you or or put the worst spin on your position or things like that. That 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 ability to, to love even enemies and even people who we disagree with charitably, I think is an important piece in this whole conversation. I'm reminded too of a line of uh, N.T. Wright, the the British, uh, both church canon and, and New Testament professor who says to his students something like, when we get to glory, I expect that about one third of what I've taught is gonna turn out not to be true. I just don't know which third it is. Um, and that like, so here's somebody whose job is to be teacher of the church and leader in the church. And yet he's got this humility of I, all, all that I teach and believe and think it all makes sense. It hangs together as a system, but I'm sure something isn't right there. I just don't, if I knew what it was, I'd try and do better. But that humility that allows us to say, here's why, here's what I think. And here's why I think it, here's my reasons. But to be humble enough to say, I'm gonna probably turn out to be wrong on some things, maybe even some really big things. How am I gonna live my life now that one day in glory I, I don't have to um uh swallow too much, eat too much crow uh, on the ways I've been rotten toward other people who disagreed with me who will turn out to have been right? <laughs> um, but like how we live now and how we engage with people uh, that that denominational life is one of those things that forces us to learn that and to get better at that. maybe that also is helpful too because i you know lutherans lutherans as a as a tradition like to see ourselves as we're a theological movement we're a movement that's grounded in these certain theological principles and to some degree wesleyanism has certain characteristics about its core values or, or principles or whatever um and yet to say our our salvation isn't by orthodoxy you know like that like that that to say i'm saved by jesus christ isn't I'm saved because I believe the correct list of facts and I would get a hundred on my mm-hmm. theology exam, but it's God's grace in me. And that if God's able to forgive even my sins, God's also got to be able to forgive the place where my theology is wrong or where my polity is wrong or where, you know, and and if I can see that about myself with humility and go, oh, I'm not, the reason I belong isn't that I got all the answers right on my theology exam, then that also means other people can belong, even if their theology is wrong. If it turns out they're the ones who are wrong, or it turns out when we get to glory, we're both wrong. <laughs> um, but that it's it's that acknowledgement of grace that is one of the reasons to I, I think to keep me or to keep us in in larger church bodies it's a way of reminding us we aren't saved by orthodoxy it doesn't mean we get to be sloppy about what's right or what we think is what the gospel is all about but we make a really that that salvation by orthodoxy is just another way of dressing up you're saved by your good works it's just you made the good works all pencil and paper ones instead of actually charity towards your neighbor
2: i find that that notion of grace so important and and i think that for me it was because i grew up Uh, with Southern Baptist grandparents who were my main religious influences in my life. I didn't belong to a church, so the only influence I had was my two grandparents. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents were really well meaning, um, but they were also very strict and had that long laundry list of things that I needed to do to be saved, right? I needed to, read my bible every day i needed to pray mm-hmm. every day and like they never really set like a time limit but like in my head it was very much like i could not i could maybe pray not enough and then i wouldn't be able to take that off my daily to-do list um you know i needed to do x y and z i needed to firmly believe that Jesus Christ had saved me and that I chose Jesus. And if I ever had an inkling of a doubt in my head that I wasn't saved, then that meant I wasn't actually saved. And for me, like a lot of that question of salvation and whether or not I was or wasn't saved, and whether or not i was doing enough to be saved where like mm, this mm-hmm. was now my responsibility for myself was to make sure i was saved K- kept going round and around and around in my head and what i was doing and a large large part of that i think was because i wasn't in community i mm. had no one other than my grandparents teaching me and you know when when my parents joined the Lutheran Church when I was in middle school and took me along because I think they were tired of my like religious questions that they didn't have an answer for and you know again on my laundry list of things that my par my grandparents insisted that I do to be saved was I needed to go to worship. How do you go to worship when you're living 50 minutes away from your grandparents who used to take you? Like,
0: mm-hmm.
2: um, so my parents joined the Lutheran Church. And then I was suddenly in community and heard that word of grace that I don't think I would have heard grace if not for community.
1: Mm-hmm. It's interesting to me, too, as, as you mentioned that and that sort of erring on the side of grace or leaning on the side of grace in our life together. Um, I can remember. Um, and, and I'm, this is going back to like my readings in Luther, like back in college. So this is now more than, more than a couple of decades. So it, forgive me if it's a little fuzzy, but you know, when, when the, the reformers themselves talked about questions about like, well, how, how do we draw lines out who's in and who's out? How often they go back to that parable of Jesus about the wheat and the weeds in the field, you know, and how often their response is like, if we get too zealous and we got to get rid of the people who don't belong, that's not how God operates things that god's God's intention and how often they interpret that as a parable for like church life as here here we are as God's people there's gonna be people who get it wrong or who uh don't believe the right things or who are weeds in the field or something like that. It is not our job to go yanking them out It is not our job, but like to acknowledge the church by God's intention or design or permission is always going to be that uh, I think the Latin phrase is a uh, corpus mixtum there's there's always going to be saints and sinners together, uh, and there's going to be wheat and weeds in the field and that we do a lot more damage than we realize and almost always more damage than good when we start weeding out people who we don't think belong, um, and that it, it it's that sticks in my head is like I'm not sure that that's really what Matthew has in mind when he tells that story, or Jesus had in mind. I'm not sure he's nearly so interested in church polity as you know later uh, theologians are. But it 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 doesn't seem like it's a bad reading or a, a bad conclusion to draw that yeah we we should probably be real careful about deciding um, you're not sufficiently like me. So that you've got to be like there's there's a strong leaning toward or a predisposition toward grace among people. Because so often in the intention of making things pure, uh, some somebody who is a, a damaged uh, or struggling grain of wheat gets destroyed.
2: And and also, I think we need to acknowledge that God can work through weeds. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like um, I think of this every year with my dandelions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, dandelions are the first weed to usually pop up and first flowers to come out. Um And that is intentional because that is the bees first food source of the spring is the dandelions. When nothing else is blooming, that's what the dandelion, the bees go to, to, to eat and to get like their first nutrients after the long winter. And so God works through those dandelions for the bees and so I really resist the idea that I need to spray my lawn to get rid of dandelions because the dandelions are there on purpose. Um, and I think that we need to have some of that grace in our churches too, that, you know, we might not like so-and-so in the church, but God is working through that person just as much as God is working through me or you or the person you do like that's yeah. over there. Yeah. Um, You know, God works through the unexpected. Yeah. And that includes who we would identify as weeds.
1: That's such a helpful point that at some point we might think, oh, I need to make grace for the people who aren't as productive as me. I'm good grass and they're a weed only to discover weight. It's not just that I should have permitted I should have permitted them, but God is actually doing something positive through them that I couldn't recognize at the time. And that's such a helpful recognition that there are folks or there, it can be really tempting to be like, sorry, you don't belong or you're not enough like me uh all right but i guess i'll allow you because i have to but it could be all be that god's got something clever up the divine sleeve that god is doing through them that i can't recognize um and being able to take that bigger view to grant the benefit of the doubt that is god able to be working in things that i can't see at the moment that i guess that it's that that sense of perspective that we kind of talked about touched about a little bit in this series too about how um there have been times where things that were flashpoints that congregations or, or denominations couldn't agree with in one moment. And a hundred years later, they find, okay, it turns out we could actually find ways to partner and things that kept us apart you know, a generation ago, we can now merge and become the ELCA or the UMC or whatever. And the things that, man, at one point would have kept us apart. And if we can look back and go, well, I didn't make things worse in the time when it was a flashpoint, at least I, I didn't burn bridges or prevent us from being able to collaborate. That That's a helpful point too, and maybe helpful for us to look forward in the future. There's going to continue to be issues that folks disagree on and have troubles with. How do we conduct ourselves now that one day future me doesn't bite my tongue or wish, oh, I wish I hadn't been such a jerk back then. Are there other thoughts about things that are giving you hope for the the future of uh, a church that's fragmented, uh, Erica?
0: The fact that despite all the fragmentations that have happened in two centuries of the church, that the church is still there. Hmm. She is broken, but she is still there. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Um, I believe it was Augustine who said, and pardon my language for this, um, the church is my mother um, and she is a whore, is (laughs) the quote. (laughs) Um, Yeah, like the church has flirted with a lot of bad things in the past. Um. But the church still exists.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, and so that means that the the message of Jesus Christ, for me, that's just one of those many examples for me that this is truth, mm-hmm. is that it has lasted 2,000 years. It has lasted schiz- through schisms and reun- reunification. It has lasted through war and the evils that the church has perpetuated and God's still at work in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and he continu- God continues to use the church to do that work, um, as flawed as we might be.
1: Are there other points of hope for you, Sarah, that you would commend to folks as we wrap this series?
2: I think that I, I just keep coming back to God works through the unexpected mm-hmm. and the broken. And so God continues to work through the church, the denominations, the congregations, even as broken as we all are. Um, but also, I just also keep coming back to the analogy of the weeds and the grass. And yeah. um, I would say don't spend too much time trying to figure out if you're weed or grass. <laughs> either way, God will work through you. And our definition of what is and is not weeds changes throughout the time ta- throughout times as to what plants we find useful and not useful. So, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't worry too much about trying to figure out which one you are, because either way. God will use you.
1: So, thanks for being with us, everybody, on this uh, marathon series over these uh, late summer days and into the fall, looking at how we live in denominational structures, the heartaches and the hopes that they give us. We'll invite you to join us next time for a new series and new conversations. But join us then here on Crazy Faith Talk. See y'all.
0: Bye. <laughs>